Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, where every week we ask one of our favorite comedians to pick one of their favorite topics, and then together we trace its entire history to find out exactly what ruined it. I'm joined, as always, by Wen Powers. Wen, what are we talking about this week? Well, Andrew, today we're going a little political. It's inauguration week, so we're going to skip all the fun, what we love, and just go right to the meat of it. And we're talking about the Teapot Dome Scandal, a very fun name scandal that consumed the Harding administration between 1921 and 1923 that focused on, as it always does, the fossil fuel industry. Not at all surprising. Also, I realize this is probably just me, but when we do like a pure history episode, I feel like, no, history is the positive. Just the mere fact that we get to discuss this is the positive. I can't imagine anyone in the audience agrees with that. No, no, no. They are furious with you right now. (laughs) But this is, uh, this will be coming out the day before the inauguration. Obviously, there has been a lot going on that was disturbing. And uh, I know we're all uh, looking forward to this shift and hoping things get better. So it felt like it was important to uh, cover some of the past administrations and what's happening. And Harding's was one of the most corrupt. So this was the first one to talk about. And we also have a fantastic guest to discuss it with us. He's a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, don't tell me. He also hosts the Five O'clock Somewhere show on Instagram. Adam Burke, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. This is uh, I had something to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all we're looking for these days. Just something to do. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you were a teacher before you got into comedy, correct? Everyone thinks that, but I wasn't really. I've never been a full-time teacher. I just look like it. But um, <laughs> I've done a little bit of teaching, but like in the most sort of non-professional way so oh okay i've done the kind of teaching where any actual teacher would go that's not teaching (laughs) (laughs) um but you do teach comedy writing now don't you i do yeah i did for i did uh, that's one thing during the the pandemic i taught i taught some classes through the lincoln launch which was really fun which i really like doing i like talking about stuff so it was good yeah you say any teacher would say that that's not teaching but i went to a public school in the south which means i watched the movie hardball a lot in my classes (laughs) and that's (laughs) So, I don't know. I I think as long as it's up from just watching movies uh, instead of actually teaching, I think, you know, you're more qualified than a lot of teachers I've met. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine if you went to Chicago Public School and you had a teacher that looked like Keanu Reeves? How distracting that would be. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'd be crying because I'd be focusing on G-Baby at the end of that movie, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if I watched the whole thing. I think I pieced out as soon as he started singing Biggie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when they call me Big Papa. <laughs> no joke. I have watched that movie. Like there was a rotation in my house. We watched Hardball and Rush Hour 2 one of those for every weekend for like three years, me and my brothers. It was just those two films. If it wasn't for those films, I wouldn't realize that inner city kids only exist so that photogenic teachers can come and learn a little bit about themselves <laughs> while they teach them a sport or something. God, yeah, that whole, no, it was the kids that taught me. That's not what's supposed to happen. That's not your right, job. <laughs> right, right. Thanks, kids. Maybe I won't get divorced. Well, bye. <laughs> I'm just saying you should not require as as a legal out that gambling alcoholics have to coach a little league team. Like that's not going to help them. <laughs> Actually, that is the one thing that rings true about that being the Chicago public school system. I can, I, I can totally see them doing that. <laughs> Okay, who's the drunkest guy we have? Because he's going to turn these kids' lives around. I met this guy at the track last night, and I think he would be perfect for AP history. <laughs> so, guys, this is uh, we're we're happy to be here to educate you at about that same level. Uh, so, we've got a fantastic story here. And Adam, can you tell us a little bit about the Harding administration to start? So, I kind of the reason I, I this kind of um, came to mind just because I know that you wanted to do something to do with you know the election and, and presidents and stuff and Harding just has been in my mind a lot because Trump is being compared to a lot of other presidents you know over the years and a lot of people go like Nixon some people go Hoover because you know we're two weeks away from all living in boxcars <laughs> sure some people go um, you know Andrew Jackson because he's a mad racist with weird hair but I always thought. Harding because of the incompetence and the popularity. And Harding was like, he was elected in 1920 and he's the perfect early 20s president because people loved him he didn't know what the fuck he was doing well the, but it's also weird the other thing with harding is you know people talk about legacies and it's really weird is that this is a guy who you know presided i'm sure we'll get into it presided over one of the most corrupt administrations in american history which is saying something if you know anything about american history yeah no it's a <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah exactly and when he died the country lost lost his mind there was an intense period of mourning when this you know depending on who you ask he, he was either a huge crook or just an incompetent who surrounded himself with crooks but he died massively massively popular which is absolutely insane when you look back on the legacy and i think you're right it honestly is one of the most apt trump comparisons because the response when you read about it is you know he was bad at this right, <laughs> right. we shouldn't right. be missing this right my thing with it was the two arguments were he was himself very corrupt or he was a great president who just accidentally was surrounded by <laughs> the most corrupt people possible. And like that also makes him a bad president. <laughs> and I also think the Trump comparison becomes clearer now because he had these political cronies around him. I guess they were called the Ohio gang. And these are all people that wanted essentially to be president. They all had all like run various political campaigns, but they all knew that none of them were as popular as Harding. I don't really get what it is about Harding. 
I've read things that people thought he was attractive, and if you're listening, look up a picture yeah. of Warren Harden and <laughs> explain that to me. Yeah, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, I don't know what it was. Apparently, women at the time found him incredibly attractive. But I think it was, you know, these people around him, you know, realized that this weird dude from Ohio was, for whatever reason, I don't know if it, there was a blandness there. I've never, I haven't really seen ever seen newsreel footage or anything about him. But they sort of went, you know, we'll just ride this guy's coattails and we'll get away with murder because and i think people forget too like how almost open it was that you know political graft that's i i'm a big fan of movies from the you know the 30s and 40s and there's a term that comes up in any even slightly political movie that comes up are you guys familiar with the term graft yeah absolutely i'm not well i I am, but let's let's pretend our audience. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was sort of like a catch-all term for quid pro quo, right? It was sort of this notion, and I think it was really born in Tammany Hall in New York. Just this notion that like government jobs and government contracts, it wasn't a fair bidding process. That you, it was you scratch my back, I'll hire you know your cousins to do you know to do very important government work. And I think it was weird that it was sort of like an open secret. But I think, again, like these guys took it to such a level that it actually became a scandal. You're absolutely right. And Tammany Hall also had coined the phrase honest graft, where they said very openly, look, if you can get away with it, if you can make it work and it's not technically illegal, there's nothing wrong with it. And they had such political sway for so long that everyone's like, well, I mean, we're not going to take down Tammany Hall. So this was very much a, if you can't beat them, join them. And their sway lasted for way too long. And then you're, you're right. That term carried on in Harding's administration. I mean, Harding, he had a long shot bid to begin with. I do want to interject just real quick because I did look up a picture of Harding while we were having this conversation. (laughs) And as far as presidents go, I'm going to be honest, he has to be in the top five most fuckable. If, right, if right. Just, but that's a low bar. Well, it's on a presidential scale. It's like right. you know, if he was a, if we're talking movie stars, of course not. Who's number one? I mean, I would say Obama personally. I might be biased, but I put him number yeah. one as most fuckable as as far as presidents go. A lot of people would go JFK number two. JFK would be my number two. I would go. See, I go number two. I go Franklin Pierce. Ooh, Pierce. <laughs> well, he's a cheap day. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be honest. If you get a chance, guys, look up a portrait of. Franklin Pierce, and you'll understand why he made number three on Here's Where It Went Wrong's <laughs> Most Fuckable President's List. Yeah, he's, he's, he looks like fucking Trent Reznor. He's like, he's got, like, <laughs> he's got like a, you know, he's got a moodiness to him. He's a troubled soul. We're going to change this podcast. From now on, all we do is rank presidents on a hotness scale. <laughs> <laughs> you are right, though. You are right. The bar is so low that Harding, you know, Harding's got an Ohio daddy. Right. <laughs> yeah, because he was, he was governor of of Ohio and then he he was also a senator for Ohio and basically all he did was like Ohio focused bills and that was it like to go from that to president pretty much all he had riding for him was that he was attractive because other than that he is just like the guy from Ohio that only does Ohio shit <laughs> Uh, that's the thing too that's that's so funny about this like when we when we get into it like after his death there was a lot of harding apologists who were just like uh he was just like a you know a down home midwest dude that got you know 
surrounded by this cabal of jackals through no fault of his own <laughs> right yeah exactly and it's just it's like no he was a political operator operator for you know a decade before he became president like he was governor and senator which you know being able to jump between those two anyway just seems like crazy but it's a romney yeah you don't get that that often <laughs> right exactly and also that he ran a newspaper and it's so crazy because i was re-watching citizen kane and stuff recently and like warren g harding is william randolph hearst done right right <laughs> yeah right because he like he, st- he started a newspaper and unlike hearst who like you know never got the presidential nomination harding just seemed to walk into it right <laughs> he never left his front porch to campaign if we want to be honest with it like it was literally called right, the front right. porch campaign and it was just like he had celebrities come in to shake his hand for photos but then to prove that he wasn't like an elitist they had the chicago cubs fly to him to be like he likes baseball and i'm like there's nothing more down home than flying out an entire baseball team to pose in your living room he was basically the mark baron of 1920 <laughs> you have to go to the garage lock the gates yeah <laughs> so yeah Harding was basically an empty suit. He's a blank canvas for everyone else around him to fill in. He's a magic eye painter (laughs) is who Harding is at this point. Like all we know about Harding really is that the man loved to fuck because he called his penis Jerry (laughs) and he was playing like secret child support payments from the White House. And, like, would apparently, like, have, like, Sex Fest 21 with his mistress in Oval Office. (laughs) And basically, like, just a guy who hated being president. He was like, this is, there's too much heat on me. I like having affairs. (laughs) Like, before his death, was already dedicated to being a one-term president. By the way, that's such a bland Midwestern thing to call your penis, Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) The letters he wrote his mistress are a lie. Like, referring to his penis as Jerry. He's just like... He talks to her, he's just like, Jerry came for you today. And I'm like, whoa, man. Like, that's, that's not even, that that wouldn't work cool as a text and to like write it in person in a letter is fucked up. There's a reason they call me hard. <laughs> and Wen's right. He, he had very little depth, but as you guys both mentioned, all of his work before this had been Ohio-centric. So what he did after this was tap everyone who owed him from Ohio and got so much money to move forward with this campaign that uh, basically in exchange of, look, you put up the money, you know, you can work with me and you're going to get a cabinet positions after this, which is how you end up with the Ohio gang. Yeah. Which apparent. And again, this is the whole thing where the, you know, this post death painting of him as this, you know, political knife, but he apparently he did it his whole life. He, he, he was really into exchanging stuff. Like he would exchange advertising in his paper for free rail tickets for life and stuff like that. And it's like, I was just reading, you know, the quick bit of research before, before we got on, but they were talking about, Someone said, well, there's no indication that Harding saw any of these things as being dishonest. And it's like, well, no, crooks never do. (laughs) Crooks are never like, look at this incredibly duplicitous thing I'm doing. No, of course he thought he's... But yeah, he ended up with this gang. Because this is what I've always heard about Harding. That basically, that it was, you know, again, not so much him, but it's this backroom boys of guys that he brought. He basically brought a bunch of them from Ohio, right? When he 
won the presidency? He did. He, he stacked his cabinet with him. These were all people that he owed for money for his actual campaign. And, you know, they've been going back and forth for a while. And then every one of them got in. None, none of them was like, oh, I can do some good and get up here. Everyone was like, cool, we know we can work with this president. There are going to be so many corrupt deals. It was just a money factory. That's the other comparison to Trump, too, is that you got to think of Harding's vice president is, you know, you've got Harding, who's this red hot. Yeah. According to Harding, yeah. According to Jerry. And he's, you know, even if he's not in it for the graft, all his mates are. And, you know, he's got this whole cabal of money-hungry jerks around him. And his vice president is Calvin Coolidge, who is like the, the most abstemious, quiet, almost Quakerish dude who's very like Pence. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Coolidge was far more along for the ride and, of course, eventually inherited all the scandals and didn't do great with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. When you had something on Hammond, too. Basically, let's focus on the here's where it went wrong of it all, of the Harding All right. You want to get right into the teapot dome <laughs> first, because you're right. That's very relevant. So let's start with the teapot dome. Before this, we're going to go back to 1909 and under President Taft, and the Navy is converting its ships from coal to fuel. They said, you know what, if there's a war, we need a fuel reserve. So they have three locations of fuel reserve, one of these locations being Teapot Dome, named after the rock outcropping of the place. It's actually Salt Creek, Wyoming. Elk Hills and Buena Vista Hills in California are the other two that are dealt with. Obviously, they have other locations as well. Basically, if you don't know, like in the early 20th century, there was some land surveyor just riding around America high and pale, <laughs> just naming towns after ro what he thought rocks looked like. <laughs> well, that's that's Devil's Tower. That's Mexican Hat. <laughs> Our town names could have been way yeah. more you know what I mean, than they are. Like, the fact that it's only Mexican hat. And <laughs> but yeah, it's like, well, you're right. This is how we also end up with Teapot Dome. And honestly, I've looked at the pictures too, and it is as much a stretch to call that as a teapot <laughs> <laughs> as it is to call Harding handsome. So you've got Harding elected now in 1920. Well, the reason Harding did get elected though, because he was not he was not an entity really in Republican politics when he was going. The thing was, Jake Hammond saw an opportunity in the fact of a man who was a blank canvas. Jake Hammond uh, was a member of the RNC and was uh, linked to the fossil fuel industry. And he pretty much made a deal where he said, hey, I will get you the delegates you need to win the nomination. What you will do in return is make me Secretary of the Interior. His plan was he would then release the leases to land that could then be used for oil. So he's almost like Dick Cheney in this situation. Yeah, exactly. He is definitely the Dick Cheney. I'd rather be the power behind the throne because like being president is way too much work. <laughs> the plan was once he got these kickbacks, he was going to take a percentage of the money the fossil fuel industry would make from those pieces of land. So he would then use that money because his plan was with all of this money, his son will be able to run for president in the future. <laughs> He's just like, if I could get Harding elected, if I could get this nobody elected and if I and I could become rich, then I have enough political capital to then make sure that my son can one day become president. That was his plan the whole time. And it came very close to working. I mean, it, it actually did work in terms of getting Harding elected. It just didn't work out for him. Yeah, it did work for him because, well, Jake Hammond, like Harding, birds of a feather, Hammond liked to sleep around on his wife. And he had one in particular that he had been with for about 10 years cheating on his wife with. It just so happened that Hammond was married to a cousin 
of Harding's wife. So Harding's wife was like, you are not going to bring him to the White House just so he could fuck around on my cousin. She's not coming. So he said, all right, well, I'm going to make hundreds of millions of dollars in 1920s money. I guess I can end this relationship. And so he told her like, hey, I'm sorry. It's been a fun 10 years, but I'm done. And she responded, by shooting him in the chest. <laughs> and he being like so, like he apparently by all accounts very much loved his mistress, uh, went to the hospital, took himself there and was just like, she didn't do it. This was an accident. And he died four days later and she tried to flee the country. Didn't work. She was put on trial. But yeah, the future Hammond son presidency was dead in the water, <laughs> just like his father. I don't know. I don't know any of this. This is amazing. I do think it does explain. I think there was a concerted effort by men to make women's guns very small. Because <laughs> I, th- I, I, I think in the 20s, I think they knew there was a pretty good chance that your mistress is going to shoot you. So if we give her like a, a tiny Derringer. You could probably walk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last a good four days. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Look, I'll, I'll definitely have learned a lesson, but <laughs> but but not probably not going to kill me. And you're right, actually, they did start marketing the the Derringers after you know after it all cooled down from the whole Lincoln thing, because for a while that was like, oh, Derringers, and then it was like, oh, but they're small, and women want guns now. <laughs> yeah, put it in your little purse. <laughs> but this brings us to the centennial event. I was excited that we got to uh, discuss this in a hundred years later and realize like nothing has changed <laughs> because Harding. <laughs> appoints Albert Fall as Secretary of the Interior instead. Fall is politically connected as a senator. He's also a rancher, a lawyer, a miner. And soon after his appointment, Fall convinces Harding to transfer oversight of the petroleum reserves from the Navy, who are supposed to get the oil, to the Interior Department. As soon as he does this, he basically just picks up where Hammond left off. He starts secret negotiations with two of his wealthy friends, Harry Sinclair, owner of Mammoth Oil Company, and Edward Downey, owner of the Pan American Petroleum Company. And he goes after these three locations. With zero bidding or public announcement, he leased exclusive drilling rights to these two companies, California to Doheny and Teapot Dome to Sinclair. And what was amazing about this was this was not illegal. He could do this. He could then have left his position afterwards, gotten a job on their board, made millions. But, you know, greedy people want money right away. So these three sites were estimated to contain hundreds of millions of dollars worth of oil. Once again, in 1920s money, I don't think we can (laughs) slack off on the fact that this is 1920s dollars. You're right. It was absolutely an insane amount. And basically the only cost to these people was he said, hey, you got to build a storage tank at Pearl Harbor and uh, erect a refinery in in California to build uh, a pipeline for the Naval Reserve to refinery. He sets up a similar thing going to the East Coast with uh, Sinclair. And it cost them nothing for these hundreds of millions, except for the $100,000 loan that Fall gets along with this. So this is uh, Doheny that gives him the $100,000. He, he pulls it from his son's account and has his son deliver it in this black bag that's referenced a lot, accompanied by uh, his son's friend, Hugh Plunkett. And they deliver this money. And this is the only illegal thing that has actually happened so far. Everything else is somehow allowed. Sinclair has a similar deal. And uh, this is the last part that, that I'll hit because I think this is interesting. He realizes he's taking this from the Navy. They have to fill up the reserves that they built, but that's it. So he talks to Admiral John Robison, who's the chief of Navy's Bureau of Engineering, and he gets him involved with the deal because with Robison involved, instead of money, which would have to be given back to the government and then required congressional approval to go to the Navy, instead, he got oil delivered directly to their stock. And he was like, well, fuck it, I can get the oil now directly to me or maybe get some money from Congress. I'm going to sign on with this, 
which is why the Navy is a bit more okay with Fall taking over here. What I was going to say is I do love the name Mammoth Oil for a company. I know. It was like, that's that's a kind of a dick move. Like, the Mammoth are already dead. You're stealing their bones. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's both literally what it is, and also it sounds evil it's literally what it is you're saying it's a large company and it and it's evil it's like you hit a perfect trifecta it's a name you would expect from the oil company in a captain planet pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely but when it comes to a great shave you don't have to shell out tons of cash harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced underperforming products and decided to do something better They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Cartoon. I will say, do you know what uh, Fall's excuse was for why he didn't take any bids on these projects? Please tell us. He uh, told everyone, well, actually, because I uh, gave them out right... I actually got the best deal because bidding would have changed the price. And it's like, that's not how bidding works. <laughs> or that is how bidding works. It's supposed, you're supposed <laughs> but, but to get a, a lower way. price. Yeah, you're right, right. Like hitting the buy now button on eBay, you didn't take place in the bidding. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> in fact, another oil man, when this eventually gets to trial, testifies and said that the government could have gotten 10 to $50 million more had it been open to bidding. And this is, again, as, as Wen has pointed out, 1920s money. So as soon as this is signed in April of 1922, one month later, the Senate inquiry has already begun. And this has already started, and Fall still sends his son-in-law, M.T. Everhart, to see Sinclair. Sinclair gives Everhart 133,000 Liberty Bonds plus a $36,000 cash loan. And in return, Everhart gives Sinclair a check for $1,100 to pay for the livestock sent from Sinclair's farm to fall as, you know, a supposed trade now rather than a gift because congressmen are acting questions. And instead of just passing up the money, he's like, no, I can still get away with this and continues building on the deals after he's already being investigated. There's not enough scandals that involve the transfer of livestock these days. (laughs) (laughs) It was creative. I mean, and he got quite a bit for it too. Uh, Again, he, he had this ranch and he's also setting himself up for deals that are going to be made later. He's, he's settled in, in New Mexico, and this is really going to be getting him into a position that he can negotiate future oil deals. So this is very much the long game. It could have gone fine and technically been legal, except that he wanted the money right away. Albert Fall, by the way, is an interesting character too. In, in the way, And I think, you know, you're talking about the centennial of this, and I think it's interesting where I think politicians are sort of swinging back to the 1920 model, where like for through the 90s and the aughts, a lot of politicians were just career politicians, right? There's so many people who like started off as clerks 
you know, in, in such and such an office. Like I think Cheney, you know, didn't from a young Cheney came out of the army and then went straight into that. Like a lot of people, whereas like Albert, someone like Albert Fall, like had four different careers before he was a politician. Didn't didn't he like try? Pat Garrett's murderers or something like that. Like, and, and, and by the way, the biography of every politician or mayor or governor before, say, 1930, is always like, well, he was a he was a gold prospector and a farmer and a miner right. <laughs> and then a lawyer. And it's like, Jesus Christ. And then, and then at 25, the age of 25, he found his true <laughs> calling. Like, these guys have lived entire lifetime out in the West. You're right. It was completely insane. And obviously, this is not long after the West has, has been developed. There's still enough there that, you know, when, obviously, because this was when he was a bit younger, 1880s, maybe 18. 1890- 90s yeah and yeah he's making his money off of gold and then obviously it shifts to oil and he shifts along with it except he's already in politics which makes this a lot more complicated but also easier for him to get money i don't want to step on what you guys are getting to but like one of the most famous things to come out of the trial right is a quote i think by albert fall about drainage you guys know what i'm talking about no no tell us the line from the film there will be blood i drink your milkshake that comes from this trial what really? <laughs> yeah he was trying to explain why oil reserves get depleted from one place to the other and he's on the stand and he goes say you have a straw and i have a straw and my straw is in your milkshake i will drink your milkshake <laughs> And Paul Thomas Anderson read a book by, I think, Upton Sinclair. Well, Upton Sinclair kind of like novelized some of these things and I think included a line or a line close to that. And then Paul Thomas said, Anderson, I think, got audio recording from this trial. I think he was just like, oh, that's my handy. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, that was part of his defense too. I did not know the line came from that, but he said the reason it had to be tapped now was because sites around it were going to be tapped and they were going to lose their oil reserves because it was going to drain out, which I don't know, maybe, (laughs) but you still did this without congressional oversight to make money. I wonder too, if like trying to explain oil reserves to people in the 1920s is like those Facebook hearings because you got to think, like, <laughs> you know, oil had been used for lamps up until about, you know, 1880. And then, you know, sort of the automotive and like the whole mechanical world is still pretty young. It's only 30 years young. You know what I mean? So I think like, so I think explaining how oil works to some of these senators would be like, wait, it, it comes from what now? <laughs> People, yeah. I still just found out that dinosaurs were a thing like 40 <laughs> years before. And wait, no, we're using their decomposed bodies to run machines? <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> they were dinosaurs, and now they make our cars go boom. What, what aren't you getting here? Yeah. It'd be like trying to explain to Diane Feinstein Bitcoin. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and you're explaining this to some senator who, like, grew up on a farm, you know what I mean, in the 18, yeah. 1840s, like, who lived through the Civil War. And it's just like, wait, well, do they have to be so loud? <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's so little understood about this at the time that part of the reason they were setting this land aside was because they thought they were going to run out, like, in 10 years. By the way, they thought they were going to run out in 10 years and said, let's set stuff aside for the Navy and nothing else. <laughs> Again, part of why the teapot dome scandal always sticks in my head, because again, like I went through a period more than a decade now, but I I was, I was just like, you know, (laughs) I don't know if you ever get like this, you just kind of get interested in a certain era. And I just, I was really into the 20s and I read like a fantastic book. I think it's called uh, The 20s in American Century by a guy called Jeffrey Parrott. It's a big, big book, like 500, but it's, 
but he talks a lot about in the late teens, early 20s. You know, that's when modern salacious journalism, you know, people like William Randolph Hearst and, and maybe to a degree Harding, but when th this notion of like being addicted to the news came, because, you know, people talk about the 24 hour news cycle. Back then they had the three edition news cycle, right? Like the early, the mid, and the, the late. And Americans really got addicted to murder trials. <laughs> yeah. Have you listened to a podcast recently? We're still very deep into that. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, this is the, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the notion that there's nothing new under the sun. And this is absolutely true. We're like, newspapers really wanted to stretch all the shit out and they would like investigate the background. I remember there was a really famous famous trial where like it involved it was a murder trial but it involved like the pig lady was one of the witnesses so the, the newspaper would have a whole inside section it was like what does she feed her pigs what's her favorite kind of pig you know what i mean it was just like news and news and news and i think the teapot dome was in the 20th century was the first political one of those where it was like they just filled papers with it and like every single aspect of this was fascinating because it was com just complicated enough where people could kind of get into the you know the meat of it but it was also like so simple <laughs> this guy is getting handed bags full of cash in exchange for land <laughs> that's it <laughs> but also and i think anything involved in the military i think like if it had just been you know if, if it had been at like a native reservation i don't think anyone would give a fuck but it's like they're literally taking oil out of our boys tankers and you know and, and the aef just two years before had come back from like winning the european war and I think the first thing this asshole does is cynically use the national need to feather his own nest. I think became such a sort of scandal. But it also, again, there's lots of bits to it, right? Like, like you said, it's like it's it's it sounds like a very modern scandal to me. Yeah, and that is such a, a good take on it because you're right. The way this exploded to the public, let them investigate it in slightly different ways as well. But everyone kind of became engaged in this, and it was like, yeah, this is basic on the surface level, but also once they started investigating it, they find out it's spanning countries and, you know, this ends up being like four years before it actually goes to trial. You know, I just want to say real quick, Adam, a lot of, you know, usually with, I like how you go through eras of things that you're interested in because <laughs> most white men just choose like Civil War, World War II, <laughs> those are your options. But you, you read books on the 20th, like that's fantastic. I love it. That's my first thing. And two, I just want to also just say, Fall tried to keep this secret and it fell apart absolutely immediately. <laughs> like, like the Wall Street Journal broke this so fast. Seven days after the papers were signed, the Wall Street Journal is on it and reporting on it. And everyone immediately digs into this. Uh, and as Adam pointed out, the newspaper cycle here is insane. But one that I found interesting was the Denver Post gets wind of the story. And this is still early. And well, one of the big issues here was that there, was, there were other people that said they had a claim on this land. They mm. thought they were going to be able to deal with Harding and get this land in the same graft kind of way. <laughs> so <laughs> they're suddenly going after Fall. Colonel Darden is one of the people. And Fall convinces Harding to dispatch the Marines to stop Darden's efforts to drill. Denver Post gets wind of the story and blackmailed Sinclair into paying a million dollars to them and another oilman who also felt like cheated by this. You have the Wall Street Journal on one side who is breaking the story that is is massive and un unloading this government corruption. And then the Denver Post who is like, oh, we can be part of this government corruption. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's got to be like for this Ohio gang to come to Washington and then just I think it's got to be a bit like when a bunch of Chicago comics go to L.A., 
you know, and then <laughs> and then they they just start to run their own shows. And L.A. Comics were like, "Would you get to the back of the fucking line, please?" <laughs> I think because they were so used to running shit in Ohio, where their buddy owned a major newspaper, where they were like, "Well, we can just keep." doing the same stuff in Washington, right? And then, like, you know, all the newspapers there and all the political bedrock of Washington was like, no, 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 no. And, you know, again, all of the Washington politicians get to clutch their pearls and go, how dare you? But, of course, they're going, how dare you not give me my cut? It's kind of like, I think a great comparison is Rod Blagojevich. Springfield and, you know, Chicago and Illinois Democrats were all, you know, so aghast at the corruption, but they weren't aghast at the corruption. They were aghast at the sloppiness. Right. <laughs> they were like, Rod, for Christ's sake, you don't say it on the phone. Right. <laughs> and I think this is kind of the same thing where they're a bunch of like, again, Ohio's at this time, you know, had just recently been urbanized. So there are a bunch of country lawyers who just think that they can like get away with shit in saloon bars. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. The the attitude of this was was just so blatant. In fact, he starts spending this money immediately. That he he's buying new tracts of land, and everyone is going, "Well, where is this money coming from?" And he has no explanation for this. There's there's you know they basically had their kids do the handoffs. It's like, well, yeah, but you still got the money and then spent the money. <laughs> this is not hard to trace. You barely put an intermediary. Yeah, yeah, but but my son picked up the black bag, so <laughs> right. Which also, by the way, are you cool just throwing your sons under the bus like this? <laughs> so when did he first start taking the money? April seventh is is when the paper is actually signed in nineteen twenty two. Nineteen twenty. So here's here's a little tip to anyone. Trying trying to defraud the government or, or indulge in major corruption. Don't do it. Wait, let me grab a pen of paper real quick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, don't do it right after the entire nation just goes sober. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the Volstead Act comes into effect 1919. There's been three years of enforced sobriety. People are picking up on shit a little bit more than yeah. they used to. You know what I mean? You're going against a lucid populace now. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> In 1917, he could have walked this, but all of a sudden, people are remembering things, people are recognizing people from the night before. <laughs> this is a another fantastic point, and also, by the way, Ball and Harding uh, were notorious for liking drinking as well, but supposedly, like, before and then after Prohibition. <laughs> like, I'm sure, yes, I'm sure they stopped during. Harding was famous for these poker nights, didn't he? He was like, <laughs> and surely, when all of a sudden, you know, Fall isn't that worried about losing anymore. <laughs> By the way, Harding Harding lost White House China in a poker game. <laughs> that wasn't yours, man. I mean, that is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you and I'll raise you Mary Todd Lincoln's bedpan. Uh, like <laughs> <laughs> These poker games will come up again, though, uh, when it comes to the trials. <laughs> so let, let's skip ahead a, a little bit because now that the uh, Senate is investigating and everything here is blatant, they've also, as Wen pointed out, they've got this defense of saying, well, crude oil couldn't be used on ships anyway. It had to be converted. So they traded the land for converted. They traded land for very little of the converted oil. And Harding, for some reason, sends a message to the Senate saying that he'd approved the deal. Harding could have gotten out of this clean, uh, but he kept backing fall. And they released a statement that said, this is not a defense because we did nothing wrong, just an explanation. You know, he was given oversight of the fields. The oil was intended for naval use. Technically, 
it went to the Navy and it consulted with the Secretary of the Navy, so it's all fine. If obviously at this point it only comes up when it's like, yeah, but he accepted bribes for it. None of that was illegal, despite this massive setup and obvious personal gain. So it, it wasn't until everyone realizes he's amassed what's equivalent to five million dollars in today's money that they go, okay, but something happened, right? So uh, Harding dies, Coolidge takes office, and October twenty third, nineteen twenty three, hearings on the lease begin before the uh, Senate Committee on Public Lands. Dozens of witnesses appear before the committee over months, and uh, Adam pointed out this was huge in the papers. I mean, it just keeps blowing up, but eventually it starts to die down a little bit and they're not quite sure what they're gonna do until January 1924 when Doheny concedes in a statement to the Senate that he'd loaned Fall $100,000. After this, this allowed Senator Walsh who led the committee to call for a special counsel and is absolutely the beginning of the end with, as we know, very little punishment because these are still powerful white men. Has the suicide happened by this point? The suicide has not happened yet. There is a murder-suicide uh, along with the shooting that Wen mentioned earlier. So. They're about to announce that there's going to be a special counsel and Coolidge finds out about this and announces it first and said, you know what, guys, both parties were involved. We should have a dual counsel. And they were like, no, it was just your, it was entirely your party. <laughs> it was just <laughs> you guys. Nobody else did this. But Coolidge got to look like the hero here and he got to let the oil companies keep their leases for a while longer because had Walsh released it first, he was going to demand the leases were cut. So now we get into the investigations, which we get Roberts and Pomerine as the special counsel, who are good. They seem to be doing good work. I mean, there's always debate here because obviously they're picked by people that are enough involved that it's like, how much do we really want to reveal to the public here? But for the most part, they, they, it's pretty much agreed that they did a good job. And while this is happening, Fall is hiring people to tail them. The sign of an innocent man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doing Scientology tactics is always a great sign that you are doing the right thing. Yeah. And by the way, as soon as the special counsel is decided, under pressure from Coolidge, Doherty just steps down. He's like, all right, fuck it. I'm, I am I can't make, make this work. Doherty's in the he's Department of Justice? Oh, yes. Department of Justice. This was a big thing. They actually hired the special counsel because they said Department of Justice and Doherty the attorney general are so corrupt they can't be trusted. Doherty was picked by Harding and then he picked the entire staff of Department of Justice. So they said, well, we can't trust them. We need a special counsel. Again, it's the, the Trump comparisons just keep on coming. Yeah. Once Doherty steps down, the special counsel does start working with the new attorney general, which ends up a thing later because they want to go back to their own practices. And they said, well, you're under government contract now. <laughs> you, you can't. There's conflict here. And they're like, Guys, we did you this huge thing. Just let us go work. <laughs> but that's a different story. Let, let's get into the case results here. Well, before we get into the results, though, one of my favorite things about this, because I said that poker would come back. And a big part of that was a reason why they came very confident into their trials. And the reason why was because they would have poker games with people who were involved with the trial. <laughs> yes. right. right. The people who were involved, their friends, their family, whatever. They would just do it and then just intentionally lose tons of money as just like <laughs> a, a wink kind of thing. Just like, ah, I'm just betting on, on bad – like I'm bluffing just so you know. I'm bluffing and I'm all in. <laughs> And you guys can split this and I'll be uh, and talk amongst yourselves. Like that was the entire strategy. And Harding is having an affair and banging Nan Britton in the White House during all this, right? Like in the same period. With Jerry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, I, I, you're right, when, I mean, the at no point do these people think, I should stop being corrupt. It's, it's just <laughs> a, this is this has worked until now. We're going to keep this rolling and, and see if it can work. No, dig <laughs> up, stupid. So, they've, they've got two civil trials and six criminal trials. In the civil trials, they say, guys, you can't have the oil fields. Obviously, you can't have the oil fields. We're, we're taking these back. And they, the oil companies object for years and eventually they do get, they said, okay, fine. Well, just, can you, can you pay us for some of the work? <laughs> and they said, fine, we're going to, we're going to pay you for a little bit of the work. Can I get my bribe back, please? <laughs> <laughs> it was an insane request and it actually worked. They got some of the money back and said, but we built those things to hold the oil. <laughs> it was like, yeah, but you, you stole it guys. <laughs> so they, the companies at least take a, a big hit financially, but then you get into the criminal trials and this is what Wen has brought up. Doheny was found not guilty despite records of his confession of the $100,000 loan with this really odd case where the jury broke into song before announcing their verdict. <laughs> and everyone is there is like, this can't count. The 1920s or something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take in a trial and a show. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is after his first trial had to be shut down because they found out that he was tailing all of the jurors. <laughs> so it was like, okay, we we know this wasn't on the up and up, but what are we gonna do about it? But this Adam was where would you mention before the verdict, Doheny's son was shot and killed. It was believed by Hugh Plunkett, who went with him on the deal to deliver the money because Plunkett supposedly feared he and Doheny's son would be charged for their role in delivering this bag of cash. Although looking back on it now, it's like this is 1920s police investigation of a massive government scandal. It's I have no idea why they were killed, but I feel like it's not the reason we were given. <laughs> right. And then wasn't there the suicide I was thinking of? I thought there was someone at the Justice Department where. So what's weird about this, and hopefully I'm not getting too off uh, tangential on this, but it's so funny to me. Another thing that fascinates me about this is political legacies. We're like Herbert Hoover. I feel in the grand scheme of things, he's spoken of as being a shitty president way more than Harding is, right? Like Hoover, the whole notion of like, he's the guy that kind of biffed the depression that like, he, you know, Hoovervilles and that whole notion. But Hoover was like the one guy <laughs> in this administration who was like, all these motherfuckers have got to go. And apparently Hoover talked to Harding, you know, shortly before his death and Harding was like, hey, what would what would you do if you knew of like a massive scandal in your administration? And Hoover was like, uh, I'd probably come clean and hope, you know, hope that people would appreciate my honesty. And then he was never quite sure what, according to Hoover, he was never quite sure what Harding was talking about. And then like I, someone in the Department of Justice, if not the AG, one of them committed suicide. Then Hoover was like, oh, okay, it's this. And again, real quick, the thing is, while all these, I don't know if it's during the Harding administration but while all these fuckers are basically robbing the country what hoover is doing is feeding europe hoover who is like this deeply religious dude noticed that you know after because of reparations and stuff europe was starving and hoover basically <laughs> arranged with this sort of you know sort of proto marshall plan where like he fed like i think there's statues to herbert hoover in certain like eastern european countries really he fed like he was up for like the nobel Prize prize or he might have got it i hope this isn't too tangential but i think it's like so funny 
where like you've got this guy who's basically a hero who's basically you know saving people from a famine he's in this administration that is like both massively incompetent and amongst the most crooked of all time and then the depression happens and everyone's like hoover what a fucking asshole and yes <laughs> hoover certainly did certain things wrong but it's so funny that he's kind of become this you know historical punchline whereas like he in in its administration he was the one guy who knew that something was wrong in the state of denmark you know right he was in fact everything i read he was the only one where obviously we know things later on and hoover was a big issue but although obviously things like this led to, to the depression that <laughs> we put a lot on hoover because he was there at the time this was building for a while but yeah hoover was the only one where when he's mentioned at least in this story he is the only one that's completely clean where he says this you you do the right thing you you say there's a scandal and you do what you can to make it right and everyone else seemed to be at least slightly dirty or at least on their own agenda and then yeah obviously under his presidency your president during a depression <laughs> you're, you're going to take a hit on that now wasn't because i think you already mentioned this point harding died i think i don't know how much they still prevail but i thought that at the time there were conspiracy theories you know uh harding i think was supposed to have died of like a you know gastrointestinal illness but i thought there was like a conspiracy theory that he had been bumped off i have i've heard that but i would not at all be surprised in fact shortly before his death he has that famous quote of he said i'm not worried about my enemies i can handle them uh, it's my friends <laughs> that keep me pacing the floors at night. It's, yeah, they, they said it was, he was ill and natural causes, but it was one of those ones where it's like, you're not going to be surprised if there was more to it because there were so many people that would have benefited from having him dead that could get right next to him. I mean, there's a whole group called the Ohio Gang. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think there might be some improprieties here. Somebody told Harding, I want this guy out of Washington. And all of a sudden he commits suicide like a week later. I think we can assume that there was so maybe not with Harding's death. Harding's death, uh, they said it was a cerebral hemorrhage, but later scholars are saying it was cardiac arrest. I don't think in the 20s they were able to fake that really well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but paying off the cops to say it is not that hard. <laughs> but for the president, a bit tougher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, back then, like, your best way of faking somebody's death would just be like, it was a suicide. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you can't really fake a heart attack suicide. <laughs> he, got, he, had a, he had a cardiac arrest after someone beat him up the head with presidential china yeah <laughs> so i mean you're, you're right the thing is it was a presidency that was just so rife with corruption that there was nothing that was beyond speculation it was anything could have been happening here because it most likely was happening at some level so when we finally get to fall who is the big guy behind the scenes they appropriately named by the way absolutely god i love that when you've got that <laughs> When you've got what would be foreshadowing if it was happening in a book. Uh, <laughs> it's Kismet, right? True. Yeah. His, I think his middle name is Hubris. It's Albert yeah. Hubris Fall. <laughs> And so he's tried with Sinclair. Sinclair, by the way, has already been arrested because he's is in contempt of Congress because he said, you don't have the right to question me. And they're like, we do. We've got papers showing we do. But so they're charged with conspiracy to defraud the U.S. I'm sorry. No, this is where they have to end the trial two weeks early because Sinclair hired a detective agency to shadow the jury. It was Doheny that just fucked around beforehand. <laughs> so... The judge declares a mistrial. Uh, Sinclair was again tried for contempt of court. More than 100 witnesses were called. The judge finds Sinclair guilty and he's sentenced to six months. <laughs> this massive scandal. He did get nine months earlier for, again, the contempt of court. The contempt of court was taken more seriously 
than defrauding the entire government. And But Fall has been a little bit exempt for this because he's got deteriorating health. They eventually push his trial later on, and he is found guilty by the jury. And he's sick at this point, and the jury asks for mercy from the court. He's sentenced to one year and $100,000, but they waived $100,000 because he has lost everything. He is completely broke with what would be $5 million in day money. In fact, Doheny even foreclosed on his ranch. I mean, Doheny at this point is obviously not going to be doing him any favors. And this happened largely because of his stepson, M.T. Everhart, because Everhart wouldn't testify before. And most of the people that they were trying to get to testify wouldn't say anything because they just all pled the fifth. They said, you know, we can be indicted for this. We can't say anything. So they changed the law. So the statute of limitation is three years instead of six. So now Everhart can testify without worry because someone, a senator had heard him say, you know what? These special prosecutors have treated me better than everyone on our side. He just needed the push. He needed the excuse to be able to testify without punishment. So he pushed back a little bit when they actually subpoena him. And he said, you know what? I don't I don't know anything. Maybe you can just leave it. But they said, no, we, we need you. He comes out and he actually talks this time. And he admits to carrying the money. And this is pivotal. This is what actually leads to a conviction. And the conclusion of this teapot done goes back to America with nobody being punished the way they should. Do you know what false excuse was when it came to the son being who he had hand off the money? No, what? His defense was, what kind of father would do that? God, these people are terrible people. Yeah. You, you can obviously find that Teapot Dome was too big to sweep under the rug. In fact, it was said until Watergate, this was the biggest political scandal. It was also because Fall was the first person that had been serving as a, a senator at, or for the presidency to actually be indicted and found guilty. This was the first time this has happened. This was the biggest scandal that we had up until Watergate. But still, like what we talked about when he did the Credit Mobilier, was that when you look back and these guys, you look them up, the ones that defrauded the country are still listed as they helped build the railroad. You have to dig to find the information about the corruption. And it's just the, the level of their power. Thankfully, Teapot Dome was a little bit too big that, you know, none of them paid the right price, but at least looked back on as Guys, this was so messed up. This <laughs> this was insane that you got away with this. Do you ever wonder if names, there's something to do with the names of scandals? I feel like Watergate and Teapot Dome, or they're just very sticky. And it's, you know what I mean? There's something about it where it's like, you just, it's a very short phrase. And then everybody knows what you're talking about, even though the particulars are very complicated. But people know Teapot Dome, right. That's like a thing. I think it, it certainly makes sense just considering that what allowed these to take off to this level were the headlines, were that Teapot Dome scandal was in every newspaper front page. It's just so fun to say. <laughs> it's fun to say. And it became, you know, the, the rock would show up in political cartoons. Like people knew what The Rock looked like. I think you're right with that, that this could be this catchy headline where they could say this phrase and have everyone go, oh, it's this thing and just lock into it. It's so whimsical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It's Teapot Doma. It, honestly, if you had no familiarity, you would not assume this was the biggest crime of defraudment that had ever been committed up until this period in the United States. And I, I think Harding, again, the other lesson that Harding shows, you know, if you are going to have a massive scandal in your administration and you want to get out of it with your reputation intact, die <laughs> right in the middle of it. That's like the, 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 the clever thing to do. It's because again, correct me if I'm wrong, but his body, like his body went on a Lincoln-esque train tour of the country, didn't it? Like 
I, I think he was, again, he was like in the middle of all this. People were like poor Warren Harding being surrounded by this, you know, these scumbags. Everyone he hired is corrupt. How did this happen to such a nice guy? <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's really funny too. Again, I was just reading a bit like, it's so weird because we're talking about, it's, you know, to me, it seems pretty clear cut. It's, it's that old thing of you're either corrupt or you're incompetent and one is just as bad as the other. And the thing is like, to this day, it's like Nan Britton, you know, said that he banged her in a closet in the Oval Office while the Secret Service played lookout and that he had a that she had his kid. And to this day, like apparently historians, some historians were like, I 100 percent believe that other historians are like, nah, he that he wasn't that kind of guy. And it's 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 just he's just a weird guy like that where it's like you know I feel some people are like one of the worst presidents of all time and other people are like ah I think it is especially insane because when you look at everything around it it's so clear there was some where it's like oh well you know what they hit it so well we don't know if he did it but with Harding everything was known the corruption was so deep and so well known because none of these guys felt like they had to hide it so the fact that it still looked back on with some people saying yeah but he was a good president it was like what can you point to the stuff where it was good because we know this actually happened <laughs> my thing is i think harding had all the potential to be a good president but he fell into a bad crowd i say if you gave an alcoholic gambling addict a chance to coach him in little league baseball he would have turned out okay if we're going to be making you know 90s film references i think what I think what needed to happen was Warren G needed to regulate. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It, it, uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's an interesting one. Because, like, especially with the corruption, and I always, you know, think of, have you guys read Boss by Mike Royko? No. Is this Boss from Tammany Hall? No, it's a, actually about Daly Sr., Richard M. Daly, I believe, the first the, the first Daly. Uh, and it's about, you know, how he ran Chicago, essentially, for, you know, for 30 years. And the one thing, you know, the one thing that Royko, I mean, it's, Royko was clearly not a fan. <laughs> like, like, it's not um, an unbiased look. He's, he's, uh, and it's it's one of the few political biography that I think is immensely quotable. I think it's very funny, but it's also got this lace of this anger. But one thing that Royko talks about when he talks about Daly, he goes, the thing is about Daly, and I've looked into it, and I know people have looked into it, you can't find a penny that he ever took. <laughs> he never took any money because Daly realized that power was worth more. Because if you never have to buy dinner, why do you need money? That's a great point. <laughs> and that is the thing Royko talks about as a press reporter, he would follow Daly around and he knew everyone in every building. He knew the door guy because he'd gotten that guy's brother a job in waste management. And and this is the thing I think where it changes, you know, where you get like these political dopes in the twenties, you know, fall taking bags of cash. Cause they're like maybe part of that Midwest machine where it's like graft and stuff like that. Whereas you get to the point of daily where he goes, just don't leave that paper trail. You're absolutely right. And I, I really want to read that now. And when you talk about the perspective, one of the, the books that I, I found some pieces on when I was doing research for this, it's all about the teapot dome scandal. And every time Harding's name comes up, there was this really effusive, positive writing. And it was like, dude, this is, <laughs> this is the middle of the scandal. Or why you're talking about how bad it was, but every time she was able to, or, or they were able to, to put Harding in, it was just massive praise. And it was framing him as like, Oh, I'm thinking about doing, the right thing like when they mentioned the conversation with hoover it was like oh he thought about doing the right thing though that's a good guy <laughs> <laughs>
That's what happens when you're in the top five most fuckable presidents <laughs> of all time. Guys, if, if you're interested uh, in hearing more about this too, look up the political machines from Tammany Hall to, through Daily. The 1870s when this started, I know we don't have time to get into it now, but this was where the honest graft came from and the realization that there was a way to manipulate power where you could be blatant about how much money you were getting. And this ran for like 40 years, uncontested. Nobody could touch it for far too long. And we should absolutely do uh, an episode later on on uh, Tammany Hall and political machines. And the other key is don't dick over the military. Yes. <laughs> as soon as, you know, all these equally crooked fucks get to put you in a congressional committee and go like, why are you taking diesel out of the mouths of our, uh, of our, <laughs> of our young sailors? Then you're you're, I mean, you're right. I think that did have a, a lot to do with why people, I mean, again, this is right after World War One. People are, are still in the stage of also, by the way, a period of, of huge growth for America. So people are, are ready to spend this money on the military. Look, we're saying all these bad things about the teapot dome scandal, but we don't only want to focus on the bad. That's why we have a segment on this show called In Their Defense where one of us has to defend the horrible thing we just talked about for an hour. And Adam, I believe you said that you actually had some good that came out of this. Here's what I kind of liked about it, is that this scandal was so big, and there was this sort of cognitive dissonance between this perfidy. How often do you get to use that word? Um, <laughs> this perfidy that's happening and, you know, Warren G's reputation. I think... A lot of kind of great art came out of it. You know, I'm a huge fan of like movies from the 30s and 40s, as I said. And I, I feel like especially Hollywood in the 30s, they're always like five years behind. If you look at a lot of Frank Capra's political stuff, he's clearly talking about the Teapot Dome scandal in a coded way. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You know, the notion that like James Stewart shows up and Claude Rains is this kind of older political hand who was like, hey, man, this is just how it's done. Like... That's clearly referencing the Teapot Dome scandal and also this sort of the fact that the the country at large realized that, you know, that it wasn't nickel and dime Tammany Hall graft. It was like national scale. So there's that you just see. I think it's funny that you see it spoken in that. There's also a fantastic book, which is tangentially about this, but there's one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Carter Beats the Devil. The name of the author is, I, I can't think of it right now, but the Carter Beats the Devil, it's, it's, a, it's a novel um, set in the 30s about a magician, and it kind of goes into the notion of whether or not Harding was poisoned. And it sort of talks about like, how massively popular he was. And like, you know, it, again, all the shit was happening. He would show up to theaters and he would get a standing ovation. Like, people People, people, people loved him. That book was uh, Glenn David Gold, by Glenn the way. Glenn David Gold, yes. Uh, he's, who at least was, and obviously is, but was married to the woman who wrote The Lovely Bones. I remember that. But there's that. And then finally, I just I just remember seeing, do you guys know who the neo-futurists are? Oh, yeah. They put on a play. It was so weird because it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes you hear about a production and you're like, is this just for me? Is this, right. <laughs> am I the only person who would want to go and see this? But they put on a play about Warren G. Harding and... In the play, Harding was played by a puppet, which is sort of everything that we were talking about. And it is this kind of notion that he was like, as you said, he was an empty suit. And again, I, I brought this one up just because I do think I've always thought of, you know, being surprised that there haven't been more 
comparisons between what we're going through now and what happened then, not just because of the corruption so much as the notion of political outsiders, are they necessarily a good thing? Because again, that was the thing where it's like, yeah, he's a small town Ohio politician, he'll like shake things up. And also the popularity. Say what you want about just recently twice impeached president. Like he's massively popular around the country for reasons that certain people just can't understand. Some people go, how can you look at that guy and not throw up? And I th think there must have been people at the time in the 20s who had friends who had like fucking Harding does it on the porch fucking buttons, you know? <laughs> <laughs> how can you like this guy? And he was, again, when he died, it was like it was like Lincoln died. No, you're, you're right. This was absolutely insane. And I, I do think the best comparison to what we're currently dealing with, and the more I read about this, I was amazed this is not discussed more often because it was the same thing of, of just instituting your own power and corruption trickling all the way down. But he's very rarely talked about in comparison to this. But guys, I mean, this is basically everything on the Teapot Dome. We know we've, we've got the inauguration tomorrow. We really hope it goes well. We wanted to give you some interesting history in the, in the centennial of this just horrific event. <laughs> but we hope it's also providing a distraction because I know everyone is stressed and there's a lot of similarity, but also learning about this, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. If I could just add on to that too, it's like whenever you read about scandals like this, and I'm sure you could find it if you look at papers of the 24, 25, there's going to be articles where people are like, this is the end of our republic. This is we. We have no more confidence in government. We have no, and that was a hundred years ago, and it's and it's going to happen. And I think people are right to ask those questions and to write those articles. But somehow, you know, the machine keeps trundling on. Hopefully, I, I think that's very important. Yeah, that this is not the first time it felt like we were on the brink of destruction, <laughs> and uh, and and come back from it. So I very much hope this is the case now. Obviously, uh, with the insurrection so recently, that has been on everyone's mind, and obviously as joke writers that's been a tough one <laughs> haven't cracked it yet but i'm i'm working yeah. on it. <laughs> we'll we'll get there i just invite to, to replug my um january 13th episode of five o'clock someone news is me trying to crack it I, I i counted i wrote 25 jokes crammed them into six minutes and hopefully one of them is funny so <laughs> that is amazing i will 100 percent be watching that this is going to come out on the 19th so i think i'm gonna miss that one but when will be your next episode after that i normally do them like between a week and 10 days after okay so guys keep an eye out and also please listen to wait wait don't tell me a adam burke thank you so much for coming on i've been a fan of yours since I first moved to Chicago and saw you right away hooked. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Guys, uh, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We're going to be back next week with Maureen Monahan from Tuning Out the News to discuss the amazing history of Spider-Man and the horrific direction it took. <laughs> so, uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week. I'll see you next week, Gwen. Bye. 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 Bye.